Well, this morning in this series on beginnings, we come to the first truly epic story in the book of Genesis, an account of a catastrophic flood and a remarkable rescue. It is a story that has many interesting parallels in the ancient world. It is a story that has grossed $362 million as portrayed by Hollywood uh, three years ago. It is a story that children delight in and worry over. How did Noah manage to fit all the animals into the ark? And did the sparrow hawk bully the sparrow? And who did feed the large cats and with what? And it is a story that adults wrestle with for very different reasons. For sure, it is an epic story that has to be read on its own terms. The concern is not to try and reconstruct its dimensions as we understand the world today, but is an account that depicts nothing less than a total judgment of the ungodly world as set before us here in Genesis. The whole living sea is blotted out apart from One righteous man called Noah and his family. And like all great epics, it introduces us to some of the great themes of life. Here the great overarching themes of God's dealing with humanity, sin and judgment and grace and covenant and promise and centrally salvation. It is a story that is going to shape and is going to colour all that will follow in the Bible. And it is an event where the world is never the same again. But though epic in proportion, what is fascinating, of course, is that it is essentially the story of one man. The catastrophic flood does not play the chief role. The real action is introduced to us in chapter 6, verse 9, the first verse Heather read. Noah was a righteous, blameless man among the people of his time. And like Enoch, who we thought about last week, walked faithfully with God. Here was a man who trusted God, who pleased God, who found favour with God, and through him and his line, hope will come. It is a story about a great deluge, but a story about an even greater deliverance. Interestingly, if you do some calculations from uh, chapter 5 that we looked at last week, The genealogies, Noah, it seems, is the first man to have been born after the death of Adam. And in a sense, Noah becomes the second Adam, the second 
father of humanity. And this focus, this real action, is expressed in a very simple but significant formula. And it is the four words at the beginning of chapter 8 where we read these simple words, but God remembered Noah. And commentators agree that this phrase becomes a sort of fulcrum, a pivotal statement um, around which the whole narrative hangs. And it can be expressed in the way that uh, it's been put up on the screen behind me here. Leading up to this statement about Noah and the flood doing their worst, there is a total annihilation of life outside the ark. And then following this verse, the waters retreat and a new cleansed world, as it were, with new possibilities opens up. And here at the very center is this moment of divine Intervention, but God remembered Noah. And when it says God remembered Noah, and indeed whenever it says God remembers throughout Scripture, it is always saying far more than God is able to recall names, that God has a jolly good memory, unlike Janice, unlike myself unlike David Harrison and others who've been confessing their lack of memory recently. It means that God not just notices, but God acts on behalf of the one he remembers. Here it is about God acting to rescue Noah. I've been thinking about my confession of a bad memory And uh, I came to the conclusion, this may leave Janice a bit uncomfortable, but never mind. For myself, I came to the conclusion that I don't actually have a bad memory. I can remember some things that I want to remember quite well. It's just that I'm preoccupied. And I just don't listen attentively in the first place when somebody introduces their name to me or Jana introduces a shopping list to me. But God is never preoccupied. In his perfect outgoing love, he not only listens to every one of us with unique attentiveness, but God in his grace acts for our good. He remembers us. Even when sometimes, and maybe you this morning, are not sensing it. So here is my simple four-word text for this morning, appropriate for Remembrance Sunday. But God remembered Noah. So why does God need to remember Noah? Well, obviously. Because the prominent backdrop of this whole story is one of frightening judgment. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Do you remember in the creation story in chapter 1, we read those beautiful words that God saw and pronounced what he saw as good. But now, verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. And there is a deliberate echo here of the creation story, highlighting the tragedy that has now come to humanity. God sees everything. He sees into our hearts. He saw that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. What an incredible statement. Notice the repeated emphasis on violence, on corruption. Humanity has ignored God. And in ignoring God, it has spoiled God's provision. And so very much with the sort of idea of Romans 1, where God gives people over to their own evil desires, God, as it were, aids their own self-destruction with a devastating flood. There is an uncompromising resolve on God's part. Chapter 6, verse 13. I am surely going to destroy. Verse 17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy. And so if we haven't yet noticed it, this is not some romantic bedtime story. This is actually a breathtaking, epic horror story. And it's precisely in this context that the Lord in his anger remembers mercy. But God remembered Noah. None of us will ever fully appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. Rescuing us, delivering us from a kingdom of darkness until we realize the darkness of the judgment that is to come and that we deserve. Jesus said in the days of Noah, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. And so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Dr. Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century essayist, once said this, I remember that my maker has said that he will place the sheep on his right hand and goats on his left. This is a solemn truth that this frivolous age needs to hear for it strikes at the very root of our life and our destiny. And whether today's age is more or less frivolous than 18th century England, I'm not sure but it is true, that comment. So how does God remember Noah? Well, the short answer is that God remembers Noah by making a covenant with him. Notwithstanding the human rebellion, in spite of all the violence and the wickedness, in spite of the divine resolve to destroy 
God elects another way. I love the wonderful non sequitur of verse 13 and 14 of chapter 6. I am surely going to destroy, so make yourself an ark. I am going to punish, so here's the way to escape. And then the words of 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. God remembers Noah by entering into an agreement with him that he will rescue Noah. There's going to be a wider agreement that will be looked at in chapter 9. This is the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible, and crucially, it is immediately linked with salvation. God is the prime mover here. It is all about God's undeserved compassion for a wicked people. God makes covenant by settling the terms and conditions as would any ancient conqueror. But he invites Noah to share in a partnership. To realize the covenant, Noah has to trust. And Noah has to obey. And this is exactly what Noah is doing. Look at chapter 6, how it ends. Noah did everything just as God commanded. And it is a refrain that is repeated throughout this story. And so the story quickly unfolds. And it's a storyline that most of us are very familiar with. First, there are instructions given on how to build a three-story ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Various people over the years have um, built replicas of this ark and have discovered that it really does float. Hardly a luxury cruise liner, but it does the job. And then instructions are giving about how to enter, how the family are to enter, and how the animals, clean and unclean, are to enter. And finally, chapter 7, verse 16, God shuts them in, just like the air uh, chief steward, when you sit on your plane and you fasten your seatbelt, and finally the chief air steward shuts the door. God himself makes sure the door is secure. God is in charge. He is supervising this whole rescue plan. And then the flood waters come. And what a terrifying, cataclysmic thing it is. A creation. God brought order, you remember, and form and life from chaotic waters. The Garden of Eden was watered by a gentle mist and by the four flowing rivers. And now God takes away his constraining hand and the watery chaos comes back and gushes over the earth. Merciless floodwaters, like the images we cannot forget of the 2004 tsunami, sweep away all known life. The great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were open. The waters flooded the earth, we are told, for 100 
and 50 days. And then we come to our text. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God kept his covenant. God remembers Noah by rescuing him. And this little, ugly, chest-shaped boat, which all the neighbors of Noah laughed at as some ridiculous, crazy project, is now bobbing on the water and is the symbol of God's amazing covenant care. And so God commissions a wind to blow over the earth. Just as at creation, the wind, the Spirit of God, hovered over the waters, so the same happens. The wind blows, and the waters subside, and the day comes when Noah and his family step onto dry ground. Then is Shackleton's ship, Endurance. An original picture, I think, this was crushed in the ice and finally sank on November the 21st, 1915 on their famous Antarctic expedition. And already, if you know the story, before the ship sank, Shackleston and his crew had decided that the only way they would escape is if a few of them were elected to first go to Elephant Island on a little vulnerable lifeboat, uh, the James Caird, and then on to the whaling station at Stromness in South Georgia. And a group of six of them endured unbelievable agonies. The seas were perilous, the cold was crippling, They were almost crazy with thirst and exhaustion. But on May the 20th, 1916, all six arrived on South Georgia with long beards, matted hair, and tattered garments. The whalers who had known them before hardly recognized who they were. And after incredibly only one week of rest, they then set back to rescue the others. And Shackleston wrote this to a friend while in that week. When we got to the whaling station, he wrote, it was the thought of all those comrades that made us so mad with joy. We didn't so much feel safe as that they would be saved. Derek Kidner, in his little commentary on Genesis, writes this. Noah steps out not just as a survivor, but as the bearer of God's promise for a new age. But God remembered Noah. Here is this unforgettable moment of salvation. 
And in gratitude and praise and wonder, the final section of the reading that Heather gave to us this morning is seeing Noah, the boat builder, building an altar. One writer puts it beautifully like this. Noah steps out of the tomb of the ark into the fresh air and daylight of his Easter morning and kneels down in the mud and says his prayers. Without God remembering, Noah would never have been there. And God at that point makes a further promise, which will lay the foundation for the rest of the storyline of human history, that never again will God curse the ground because of humans. Never again will he destroy all human life. And whatever else we say about tsunamis and natural disasters and the like in our own day, they are not the judgment of God. So this is the epic story. And like all powerful moments of history, it shapes and it informs all that follows. The prophets of the exile take up this story. For example, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, full of fear and despair, are told that the same God who was gracious to Noah will be gracious to them. Look at these beautiful words from Isaiah 54. To me, God says, this is like the days of Noah. When I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth, so now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Imagine those words coming to the exiles in their despair. And of course, Jesus takes up this story, pressing the need to trust him while we can, warning that judgment will come when we least expect it. Luke 17 Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day of Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And the apostles of the early church take up this story as an illustration of the gospel. As with Noah, salvation is all of God. As with Noah, salvation is from judgment. As with Noah, salvation is through one obedient man, Jesus Christ. And Peter says that the flood water symbolizes baptism. We are saved from the ways of sin and death by faith in the resurrection of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Recently, I came across this surprising fact, which you may know, that on the seabed of the Mediterranean, off the coast of Italy, is a bronze statue of Jesus. It is at a depth of 56 feet, and it stands eight feet tall on the seabed. It was the idea of an Italian diver to mark the place where a pioneer 
Italian diver, in fact the first to try out scuba gear, had died tragically. And it depicts this remarkable bronze statue, Christ offering a benediction of peace with his head and his hands raised skywards in the water. And whatever our unanswered questions about this remarkable flood story, and we have many questions, it is an event in biblical history that still speaks powerfully. We remember particularly on this day, people around the world today who are submerged in horrendous violence and grief. And much nearer home, there are so many, you may be one of them, submerged by anxiety and fear and uncertainty and regret and guilt. Our hope can never be found in ourselves. Noah stepped out onto a cleansed earth, but he soon polluted it again, as we're going to read next week. Such is the human heart. Our Christian hope and confidence is based entirely on what Christ has achieved. His full obedience, his death for our sins, his resurrection. Only Christ is the one who God remembers who can save us. We are forgiven and we are given new life by entering the ark, which is Christ. We are forgiven, we are given new life, as I say, through trusting him. And one day when Christ returns, we, like Noah, will set foot on a new creation. But God remembered Noah. And that remembering, that covenant grace is sufficient for whatever our need is this morning. If we do what Noah did and if we trust the one who God has provided, which is Christ.